The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. This uh, homily is intended to be uh, an inspiration for intercession and for social justice. And I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver, which is kind of a, a general commentary on the situation, and then I'll speak more specifically. The poem is from her collection entitled Red Bird and is entitled Of the Empire. We will be known as a culture that feared death and adored power, that tried to vanquish insecurity for the few and cared little for the penury of the many. We will be known as a culture that taught and rewarded the amassing of things, that spoke little, if if at all, about the quality of life for people, other people, for dogs, for rivers. All the world, in our eyes, they will say, was a commodity. And they will say that this structure was held together politically, which it was. And they will say also 
that our politics was no more than an apparatus to accommodate the feelings of the heart, and that the heart in those days was small and hard and full of meanness. I will say also that significant portions of my other remarks are indebted to a recent issue of the New Yorker magazine. (laughs) The gospel passage is Jesus' denunciation of the exploitation of power by a social class deemed prophetic and therefore untouchable. The passage is entitled, Jesus Denounces Scribes and Pharisees. In this instance, comprising the first 12 verses of Matthew 23, but on closer inspection, practically the entire chapter is dedicated to this indictment of those entrusted with the interpretation and application of religious law in the deadly life of Palestinian Judaism. Those trustees who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing into their mouths. An extraordinary series of woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, comprises apparently the most passionate verbal denunciation by Jesus of anyone in the Gospels. We might wonder, why does Matthew devote practically an entire chapter to this problem, whereas the other Gospels have only a couple of verses? A good guess may be that Matthew is writing for Jewish Christians. Therefore, we're presented with a lengthy catalog of indictments against a group whose position as interpreters and teachers of the Torah, the revealed laws upon which Israel's identity depends, confers a privilege and respect which shields it from the censure one would expect. This lengthy catalog is repeatedly marked by the phrase, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And perhaps nowadays Jesus would have said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, scumbags. (laughs) Each of those woes introduces a description of how this privileged class of supposed teachers, who are actually abusers, have perverted the original life-giving revelation into something oppressive and self-serving. In fact, the starkest examples of this perversion appear to be regulations associated with with the temple, giving rise to an observation by Rabbi Abraham Heschel that the most pervasive institutional sin should be called the sin of the sanctuary as true, apparently, of Christians as of Jews. That sanctuaries are a promise and possibility of a portal between earth and heaven would seem the reason. 
Therefore, Jesus concludes his list of woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together, and you were not willing. See, your temple is left to you desolate, devoid of God. The untouchability of those associated with the sanctuary has, as we know, been compromised by a broad indictment of the priestly caste in the Western Church. It's differently reflected in an interview between Marin Alsop, director of the Baltimore Symphony, and Scott Simon of NPR's Weekend Edition at the time several years ago, when Maestra Alsop had accepted her appointment as director of the symphony. Scott Simon asked her why the symphony's board of directors had taken so long to approve her appointment, to which she replied that in the culture of this country there remained the myth of an ultimate male authority figure. In the time of Jesus, of course, the myth of an ultimate male authority figure was writ even larger in the popular imagination. If it's legitimate to regard these so-called untouchables as abusers of the tradition entrusted to them, a comparison with the current revelations of sexual abuse by male power figures may be useful as revealing just the beginnings of an undoing of the male mystique which informs American society. Furthermore, I regard the courage of the revealers as not unrelated to the passionate denunciation expressed by Jesus. We talk about assault as if it were a new phenomenon as if it weren't the people in positions of authority who are so often responsible, lawyers, judges, priests, teachers, police officers, doctors, CEOs. Why do we act so shocked? The subject of sexual abuse is treated like global warming. We think that if we pretend it's not happening, then maybe it will go away. For years, for centuries, the economic, physical, and cultural subjugation of women has registered as something like white noise. Lately, it appears that we're starting to hear the tune. What had been a backdrop is now in the foreground. It has become a story with rotating protagonists, which never seems to leave the news. Sexual harassment and assault is an issue that crosses all boundaries, political or otherwise. It's about predators in power who know that they are untouchable and the people who enable them. Thanks to mainstream, fe mainstream feminism, victimized women have been supported to an unprecedented degree by much of the media and the public. 
At the same time, political backlash ensures hard limits for this support. The increasing narrative clarity about male power does not always translate to progress. For women, it feels all at once shockingly possible, suddenly mandatory, and unusually frustrating to speak up. We should pay attention to the dynamics that make this progress irregular. Not all abusers meet with consequences, and not all women can attain firm ground. Men are still more often held to a standard of consistency than of morality. The star abusers were disgraced, in part, because of their hypocrisy. Men who never pretended to see women as equals or as worthy of respect can generally just keep on as they were. There are significant constituencies in America who are not yet interested in holding men accountable for abusive behavior. And there are still huge swaths of women, the poor, the queer, the undocumented, who can't count on the security that feminism has conferred on its wealthier, whiter adherents, or trust that their victimization would even become news. Nevertheless, the hunger for and possibility of solidarity among women beckons. Recently, women have been posting their experiences of assault and harassment on social media. We might listen to and lament the horrific stories being shared and also wonder whom exactly are we reminding that women are treated as second class. Being heard is one kind of power, and being free is another. We have undervalued women's speech for so long that we run the risk of overburdening it. Speech, right now, is just the flag that marks the battle. The gains won by women are limited to those who can demand them. Individual takedowns and social media stories do not yet threaten the structural impunity of powerful men as a group. On one side of the issue, the moral weight is crushing, the energy vital and sincere. On the other side, there is disavowal and retrenchment. In between are plenty of people who would rather we just talked about something else. This type of problem always narrows to an unavoidable point. The exploitation of power does not stop once we consolidate the narrative of exploitation. A genuine challenge to the hierarchy of power will have to come from those who have it. <laughs>